Welcome to Smoko, Ice Enthusiasts. The Americans get the lens this episode as we catch up with the United States Exploring Expedition, nicknamed the XX. Charles Wilkes spent most of his career up to the XX ashore. He was one of the few naval officers with any interest in science, his particular longsuit being astronomy. When Poinsett was given the hurry-up to get the expedition underway, the role of leader was effectively a poisoned chalice, declined by several officers senior to Wilkes because of the meddlesome politicking already witnessed and deemed likely to continue. Wilkes refused the command when it was offered, citing the large civilian corps of scientists as holding too great a potential for the naval cohort to be reduced to a taxi service. Wilkes and Poinsett came to an agreement wherein, if Wilkes accepted the command, the civilian scientists would remain on pay until the expedition sailed and then received notice they were mostly staying ashore. Many of the civilian staff already resigned from their jobs and spent their savings on the instruments and books that Wilkes failed to collect in London. Wilkes, being indifferent to sciences other than astronomy and the magnetic measurements he recently learnt through the mentorship of James Clark Ross, didn't purchase microscopes or supply any consumables for those naturalists allowed to remain on the books. Even those instruments bought to cover the needs of the surveyors and physicists became a bone of contention as the theodolites, pendulums, dip circles and sextants Wilkes returned with from London, Paris and Munich leaked out of the hands of the depot of charts and instruments. Officers were assigned to chase down the missing equipment in another XX waste of time and energy. On the 26th of July, President Van Buren, Secretary of War Joel Poinsett and new Naval Secretary James Kirk Paulding visited Norfolk for a lunch at which to toast the anticipated success, giving formal governmental approval for the project. Wilkes spent the whole event anticipating an announcement of his promotion to captain, which never came. He fully seethed over this, and his letter to Poinsett warrants some verbatim quoting. I hope you will never feel the mortification that I do at being left now to grapple with things the government might have put under my entire control by the one act of giving Mr Hudson and myself temporary acting appointments for this service and which I consider as fully pledged to us. But he had a cunning plan, more of which anon. The XX, comprising six vessels, left the Norfolk Naval Depot, Virginia, in August 1838. Wilkes' orders placed commercial interests in the accurate locating of navigational hazards above scientific advancements and called for two summer forays into icy waters with a winter circuit of Pacific Islands between them. With explicit instructions to respect the rights of any people encountered, the expedition constituted an attempt to establish sound trading relationships where the contemporary French and English efforts held clearly stated territorial ambitions. The ships assembled for the work amounted to a motley fleet. The Flying Fish and the Seagull, former New York pilot schooners, while small and manoeuvrable, offered little shelter to their crews. An illustration of the helmsman at the tiller gives a sense of the scale of the 96-ton Flying Fish and of the exposure the crew experienced in sailing her. The larger vessel offered greater safety and comfort, but even so, 
William Hudson commented of his command that the Peacock has been fitted out with less regard to safety and convenience than any vessel I have had anything to do with. Greater safety and comfort is a relative phrase though. A naturalist, Titian Peel, the only member of the scientific team to volunteer to sail on the first southern foray, recounted of the Peacock, The gun deck has been constantly afloat since we left Orange Harbour. Even my room and the purses opposite to it, the floor being all the time covered and swashing, I suffered several losses in drawing paper and books. Not my idea of sound conditions for effective research. Poor preparation may indicate the political meddling affected the expedition at a bone level, but it might also be that after the points at Culls, overall expedition inexperience in sailing in icy waters left the XX oblivious as to what the Southern Ocean would demand of them. The six ships arrived in Tierra del Fuego in mid-February, the time the planning required the smaller vessels return from their first experimental probing of the ice. Too late in the season to attempt following Waddell's path, Wilkes left the flagship Vincennes and joined the vessel Porpoise, which, in company with the schooner Seagull, sailed from Orange Harbour for a survey of Palmer's land coastlines. The Peacock and the Flying Fish, under Lieutenant William Hudson, sailed southwest, hoping to reach and then exceed Cook's southernmost point. Both parties received instructions to circumnavigate Palmerland if it proved to be an island. Meanwhile, the expedition flagship Vincennes and the supply ship Relief remained in South American waters to survey the Straits of Magellan. Wilkes found his attempts to survey and make landfall on Palmerland thwarted by fog, storms, icebergs and pack ice. The porpoise turned north after just nine days on task, not having reached the circle. The seagull pushed on to Deception Island before returning to Orange Harbour, but was lost with all hands during a gale on the subsequent transit to Valparaiso. Hudson reached 70 degrees 14 minutes south, a degree shy of Cook's best effort, but the pack ice was already consolidating and blocking his way. The decks and rigging were damaged by storms and made treacherous by icy rime, causing the death of one sailor who fell from aloft. With his crew suffering in their inadequate clothing, the ship turned and sailed for Valparaiso. The flying fish, badly beaten by storms and separated from the peacock, pushed on further but still fell short of Cook's mark. The thermometer, broken in rough weather, was replaced by a suspended tin mug of water. The crew determined to sail south until it froze, which it did, so they turned north too. The remaining five vessels reunited. The supply ship Relief, a poor sailing vessel even in open waters, was deemed unlikely to fare well in the Southern Ocean in light of the smaller vessel's experiences, and sailed for Norfolk, Virginia, carrying 11 officers with whom Wilkes had fallen out. Several of these, he felt, held grudges over the treatment of Jeremiah Reynolds and were discharged as threats to Wilkes' authority and handbrakes on the ambitions of their lieutenant. Um, that is to say, on the ambitions of the expedition. Two days out of port, as if Wilkes' appointment as leader of the expedition hadn't already raised hackles and inspired a lot of negative scuttlebutt around the scuttlebutt, 
a maritime equivalent of the water cooler, both literally and figuratively, the inexperienced and much despised lieutenant raised a captain's pennant from the Vincennes masthead and placed captain's epaulets on his uniform. Nobody was dumb enough to think Wilkes' appearance and increasingly strident quacking conferred duckness on his bearing. The crew found his posturing comical. The lack of respect Wilkes received from his subordinates continued to feed a steady feedback loop throughout the expedition, with Wilkes becoming ever more strident and paranoid, and the officers and sailors losing ever more respect for him. With 400-plus officers, sailors and scientists, Wilkes needed respect his temperament and experience couldn't command. The Vincennes, Porpoise, Flying Fish and Peacock began a six-month circuit of South Pacific Islands. I usually give little time to the winter, non-Southern Ocean aspects of expeditions, but I'll make an exception in this case, because while visiting the islands of the South Pacific, the XX went to war with the native people of Fiji. In attempting to establish some ground rules for bartering with the locals at Malolo, the crew took hostage one villager who visited the boats. While a party of junior officers and sailors went ashore to make negotiations, the hostage leapt overboard and began swimming for the beach. A shot fired over the hostage's head ignited a melee on the beach, in which two officers, one of them Wilkes's nephew, were killed. In the reprisals, 80 Fijians died, and canoes, villages and farms were destroyed. This incident will raise its ugly head again later in the narrative. The ships began preparing for their second southern voyage in Sydney in December 1839. While there, the Americans developed a reputation for tight-lippedness, following their explicit orders not to discuss expedition achievements with outsiders. Maritime authorities in the British colony expressed horrified fascination at the condition of Wilkes's fleet and the lack of icework modifications. No watertight compartments, no waterproofed decking, no ice saws, no anti-scorbutics. The crew set about amending some of the more egregious omissions, but sow's ears and silk purses and so on. The nine scientific staff remaining after Wilkes and Poinsett's science cull during the expedition preparations accepted the offer to remain in Sydney and meet the ships in New Zealand's Bay of Islands, the reasoning running that the ice held nothing for them to research, but likely concerns about Lieutenant Wilkes's stability had something to do with their decision. I've ditched opportunities to avoid dealing with crap leadership and several colleagues relate similar tales. Scientists can be avaricious regarding experiences and research opportunities, but tend to suffer privations gladly only when those privations are of their own making or engaged on their own terms. Hitching yourself to a demonstrated nutter determined to fall southward in pursuit of fame and glory isn't most scientists' idea of a good time or career move, and I wonder how many of my historical counterparts rued their decision to head south under some schmuck who got them iced in or dead for no good reason. Three runaway convicts stowed away on the Vincennes before it departed Sydney on Boxing Day. I know convict life in Sydney at that time sucked donkey balls, but I don't know if those donkey balls were sufficiently big and hairy that I'd trade for life under sail under the unstable Wilkes below the Convergence, but they couldn't have known what they were stowing themselves in for. The Vincennes and Porpoise, sailing faster than the Peacock and the Leaking Flying Fish, missed Macquarie Island in a storm 
and couldn't find Emerald Island where their charts indicated it should lie. It doesn't exist. Eager not to lose time in this first full summer season, the Vincennes and Porpoise pushed on without backtracking to the planned rendezvous points. The fleet was spread out, against Wilkes' explicit orders. On the 11th of January, the Vincennes and Porpoise reached an icy wall, hundreds of feet high and apparently impenetrable. On the 16th of January, two young officers aboard the Peacock, only just rejoining the Vincennes and Porpoise at the ice barrier, thought they sighted mountain peaks from the masthead, but William Hudson, alert to the number of false positives already reported in the area and later debunked, dismissed their claim. On the 19th, Wilkes, aboard the Vincennes, claimed to sight land too, but the wall of ice prevented the ship sailing any closer, and doubts about the claim were quick to circulate. The flying fish didn't catch up with the main body of the expedition at all. At 143 degrees east, facing the ice barrier, the perpetually wet, sickly crew of the leaking and wallowing ship implored their captain, Lieutenant Pinckney, sail north. Pinckney consulted with his officers, and in a carefully recorded dialogue, likely presaging a torrent of bile for lack of fortitude on catching up with Wilkes, made clear their reasons for turning north. Pinckney sailed for New Zealand, his crew much relieved. On January 23rd, the Peacock took aboard a penguin the crew caught on an iceberg. Quickly skinned, for science, and butchered, for a feed, the stones in its crop excited William Hudson, demonstrating, he thought, their proximity to land. Hudson's excitement was premature. Ice damaged the Peacock's rudder. This simple phrase undercooks the situation. Ice came close to crushing the peacock to matchwood, with the rudder being the article requiring the most urgent attention. Running repairs gave a degree of steerage, but not enough to traverse pack ice with any degree of safety, and the ship sailed back to Sydney for more effective repairs. The two remaining ships reached a 200-foot-high ice barrier at 160 degrees east and made their way west. On the 12th of February, Wilkes climbed the rigging and sighted snow-covered mountains at 112 degrees east and became convinced Antarctica was a continent. The champagne came out. After sailing 700 nautical miles along the ice barrier and exceeding Wilkes's goal of 105 degrees east, the Vincennes turned for Sydney to regroup with the Peacock and to return the stowaways to their prison home. The three convicts, on being discovered, had been put to work, but only went on the books for provisions, not pay. The youngest of the three, a boy transported for pickpocketing and therefore named Oliver Twist by the crew, became much liked. All three were sentenced to extensive floggings on their return to the colony. Of 105 lashes, the last five given to Oliver Twist fell on dead flesh. That's some pretty big, hairy donkey balls right there. Even with extensive coastal charts under his belt, Wilkes worried over the loyalty of his officers. I cannot help feeling how disgusting it is to be with such a number of officers, one or two I must accept, who are endeavouring to do all in their power to make my exertions go for nothing. Paranoia is a grinding, gnawing, self-perpetuating beast 
and the privations of life at sea and the loneliness of command must serve to reinforce any ill sentiment. But starting out as an ego-driven prick, given a command he didn't deserve, it's possible Wilkes's fears and doubts were founded on an honest self-appraisal of his worth. It was at this point the porpoise, separated from the Vincennes by a gale and lagging behind several days, encountered the astrolabe and the Zalie. Codwallader Ringold sailed past the French like they weren't there, though he asserted to Wilkes in a report made on his return to the USA that he made every attempt to make hailing distance, but that the French thwarted his efforts. Ringold turned north, sailing for the prearranged rendezvous in the Bay of Islands, New Zealand, on reaching 100 degrees east. In Sydney, Wilkes caught news that de Vere was skiting about sighting land on the 19th of January. With no solid record in any of the remaining ship's logs or cruise journals of land sighted before the 30th, the Americans were shaken. Everyone forgot Bellingshausen already sighted land 20 years prior, and so the difference of a few days or weeks between French and US observations took on disproportionate importance. Some hurried revisions of journals ensued, but the appended addenda make unconvincing reading. News of the French claiming ceremony on actual land caused further consternation. Armchair explorers derided Wilkes for failing to put ashore, failing to understand how ships in ice-strewn waters facing an impenetrable ice barrier differ from their far more manoeuvrable and virtually unsinkable seating arrangements. Monday's experts are not a new phenomenon. If I was there, I would have raised a flag built a log cabin, run to the pole and back and biffed any pom or Frenchie that tried to stop me. Failing to recognise the ice barrier as the floating continental margin formed by the consolidated ice tongues of many glaciers, Wilkes' reliance on mountains as his land sightings made far less a case for a continent than his claims required. He was correct. Antarctica is a continent, but his disparate sightings of distant nunateks didn't support that contention as solidly as the ice barrier did. Wilkes' concerns over what he knew the French achieved became overshadowed by what he imagined James Clark Ross might achieve. Late on the scene compared to the French and American expeditions, Ross's pedigree as an ice pilot still put the wind up Wilkes. Wilkes broke with his orders to keep Stumm about all expedition achievements and sent a letter and chart to Hobart to await Ross's arrival. The Gambit, geared to preclude Ross making claims equivalent to Wilkes's own sightings and surveys, constituted a big risk. Not only could it land Wilkes in trouble with his superiors for breaking orders, but Wilkes couldn't know how the information, which included notes on winds and currents and an estimate of the position of the South Magnetic Pole, might affect Ross's decisions or aid his efforts. Either way, Wilkes took that risk and, as we'll cover later, it did not serve him well. In June 1842, the Vincennes returned to Norfolk, Virginia, arriving well ahead of the Peacock, which he tasked with making hydrographic measurements, all but ignored for the entire expedition to that point, all the way across the ocean en route to collect specimens left in Rio de Janeiro. The specimens totaled five small boxes of material, All those on board felt, I would say accurately, 
that the dual tasks constituted a deliberate attempt on Wilkes's part to slow their progress, ensuring the flag vessel made it home first. Fifteen expedition crew died in the years spent at sea. Sixty-two were discharged because they displeased Wilkes in some way, and forty-two deserted. With the relief sent home early, the seagull lost with all hands, and the flying fish sold in Singapore. The much-diminished fleet returned in dissolute fashion, preceded home by rumours of Wilkes' incompetence and brutality. No one raised a fuss at the naval docks in Virginia. The presidency changed hands twice in their absence, passing from Martin Van Buren to William Henry Harrison, who died of pneumonia just 32 days into his presidency, and then on to John Tyler. Both Harrison and Tyler feature in the song The Mediocre Presidents on The Simpsons, but that lay in the future, and at the time, potential future parody didn't prevent Tyler giving the expedition a very cold shoulder when they came home. The new president wasn't getting along well with Congress, and a returned scientific expedition with little to report held no prospect for political gain on either side, and so went largely unacknowledged. Officers expecting promotions and citations received none. Scientists expecting plum research positions were overlooked, and their reports languished in peer-review limbo. Congress assigned funding for publication of just 100 copies of the overall expedition reports. These came to 24 volumes and feature many beautiful colour illustrations. Rarities within rarities. Any further copies would come at Wilkes' expense, and since the 100 copies that Congress funded came to a total of $300,000, that was a big ask. With little in the way of new discoveries no territorial claims, and no mercantile opportunities revealed, the XX also received short shrift from the press and industry, so the public heard little from the Antarcticans. Wilkes, little liked by his crews, came under close and discomforting scrutiny from his superiors. His officers made accusations against him regarding his leadership and the claims he made about the expedition achievements. Wilkes made his own accusations, but the bulk of his gripes against the officers serving under him were petty by comparison. Most accusations were dismissed by the Navy, and those upheld resulted only in minor punishments, the worst being a public reprimand of past midshipman May for disrespect to a senior officer in the execution of his office, and 12 months suspension without pay for Assistant Sergeant Guillon a more serious charge of insubordination and mutinous conduct against May was dismissed. Charges against Wilkes, deemed worthy of courts-martial by a court of inquiry, dealt with his leadership and his claims. These resulted in some dismissals on technical grounds, some exonerations in light of the available evidence, and a guilty verdict regarding the excessive use of floggings as a disciplinary measure for which Wilkes was reprimanded. Wilkes's self-indicating account of the massacre at Malolo, that the crew who carried out the killings didn't want to drop themselves in the shit, and likely most importantly, the racism of the day, prevented the bloodbath in which 80 Fijians died from registering on the naval radar. While no other officer would back Wilkes on his claim of sighting land on the 19th of January, 1840, 
and only one sailor would even acknowledge having heard Wilkes state he'd sighted land at that time. The court couldn't demonstrate he never sighted land, and a guilty verdict could not be reached. That didn't establish the claim, but it didn't drop Wilkes in the shit over it. That particular dent to his reputation came later, when subsequent expeditions demonstrated that no land existed where he claimed to make his sighting. Wilkes continued in the Navy, but his existing political baggage and ability to quickly and comprehensively rub people up the wrong way retarded his ascent up the promotion ladder. He was promoted to commander after the XX, but it was a further ten years before he reached the rank of captain. His interception of a British mail steamer, the RMS Trent, in 1861, almost brought Britain into the Civil War as a Confederate ally. Initially praised for the arrest of the two Confederate diplomats aboard the Trent, President Lincoln later threw Wilkes under the bus due to the diplomatic pressure from Britain and the Navy placed him on the retired list. The Trent affair threw Wilkes into tension with his naval superiors and the then Secretary of the Navy, Gideon Wells, stymied Wilkes' promotion to Commodore, leading Wilkes to express himself more forcefully than deemed becoming of an officer, and he found himself before a court-martial once more. In 1866, found guilty of disobeying orders and insubordination, Wilkes was placed on the Navy retired list as a rear admiral. Here's your gong, now shut up and sit still for 11 years and then die. Which he did. Wilkes' continental conviction, though based on shaky data, formed the basis for the expedition's most prominent contribution to the popular conception of our icy south. He called the continent in which he held such confidence the Antarctic continent, based on the long-established but informally applied ancient Greek for opposite the bear. The name stuck with such ubiquity that it's only in researching this series that I realised that someone must have been the first to use the name in a formal sense. I'm not great in imagining alternate histories, but we know Terra Australis stood as an early contender for the role. I like the word Antarctica, but as with my enjoyment of pie floaters, my thinking that driving on the left is natural and proper, and my appreciation of the PBY Catalina as the most beautiful airframe ever devised, familiarity can blind us to shortcomings. Antarctica is what we've called the southern continent all my life and for several preceding generations, but it could have been something different. The US exploring expedition achieved far more than its inauspicious origins and poorly respected leader might have presaged. It could have achieved more, and a less ego-driven leader might have given its achievements greater credibility. But Wilkes did his bit in unlocking the secrets of the South. This episode I'm going to give my respects to Pat Haggard, a man I respect, trust and admire more than most people. Having used the phrase XX several times this episode, I'm now off to listen to the XX, so take care and appreciate your coffee.